Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. Good morning. (laughs) That was a nice community radio sound, moving of the mic. (laughs) (laughs) Not subtle. Not subtle. Yes, but it's a beautiful morning. Uh, If you're listening to us podcasts later on, uh, let's hope it's a fine weather as well. Uh, Here it's early, 7.30am in Melbourne at 3CR Studios. Solidarity Breakfast, Annie and... Kim. That's right. And today we're going to be going to West Palpua. We're going to uh, take you back to the 1999 chat with uh, uh, Jack uh, Mundine. We're going to go to Bendigo Street and uh, the uh, Homeless uh, Persons Union battle. We were going to be speaking to Spike and Kelly, but uh, they're in mourning and uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, They're going to come and talk to us uh, next week. Uh, we're, so we're going to the steps of Parliament, Victorian Parliament steps, where there was a rally against the selling of 70% of uh, public housing stock in Victoria, which is really the same story. You're on 3CR with Annie and Kim. Unemployed, underemployed, receiving Social Security, getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink. The Australian Unemployed Workers' Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our national advocacy hotline on 03 83 94 5266. It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your rights. Kim, I uh, got a word from one of our fellow uh, broadcasters, Vivian Langford, that uh, there had been a delegation from the Catholic Justice and Peace Commission from Brisbane, uh, they uh, to West Papua. And uh, when I was telling somebody about this, they said, oh, that's a bit scary. And uh, they are right. West Papua is scary. They went in February and they've done a report. It's called We Will Lose Everything, which is a direct quote from uh, the West Palpians. And uh, I got to talk to Sister Susan Connolly, who uh, was one of the delegate um, who went, who, who she went there, and uh, we'll hear what she's got to say in the first half hour of Solidarity Breakfast today. That's interesting. I wonder... What prompted them to take an interest? 
Well, Sister Susan had a long association with East Timor and the battle, or Timor-Leste, as it's called. Uh, and uh, she actually reflects that it was really similar to uh, her experiences in Timor-Leste and that uh, the uh, it's a crime where we're actively... Um, Australia is at uh, governmental level is actively complicit in a major crime which has been going on for five decades. So here's yeah. First, let's start with the fact that you uh, did a very brave thing, I'd have to say, and uh, went with uh, uh, your compatriot to West Palpura in February. Yes, that's right. Peter Arndt uh, was the man I went with. He's the director of the Catholic Diocese of Brisbane Justice and Peace Commission. And uh, he's very involved with Papua and often goes to the Pacific and has he, he had been to Papua before. It was my first trip. Yeah. What was your impression? Look, my, my strongest impression was it was like going back in East Timor 20 years ago, which was my first trip to Timor, 1996. It was the same awful feeling of uh, um, sort of oppression or suspicion. That's, that's what um, came to me. And I was only there two weeks. And at the, towards the end... I was thinking to myself, should I be talking to this person? You know, even in Catholic um, areas where we were, like, you know, a couple of people, good English, and I'm talking away, and all of a sudden I thought, should I be talking to this person? You know, you don't know where it goes. Now, that that's a horrible thing. But you can understand when you look around at just the the overbearing presence of military and police and just watching you, you know. I, I passed by a young man in a uniform, young Indonesian soldier, handsome young fellow. Where I was passing in a car and he, he was uh, standing on guard, obviously, at a shop or something. And I just happened to catch his eye and he looked right at me and I looked right at him and he sort of knew what I was thinking, I'm sure, and, you know, maybe I knew what he was thinking. Like it was, and these people live like this all the time. There are story after story of a suspicion and who owns this shop and what's going to happen if I buy this mobile phone. I didn't buy a mobile phone in the end because I was warned that all the information would be known by them, you know. So even if, you, even if it wasn't true... It's a terrible way to live. Now, your report, the report that you have written, uh, well, the uh, uh, you and Peter have written, we will lose everything. That's a direct quote from the yes, that's right. from the West Palpians that you met. That's right. Look, they said things like that. They, one man said to me, he said, we are in danger. And then he collapsed into tears. Oh, look, it was terrible. An old, a man older than me, and here I am with this poor man. Uh, like it's, it's, it was just terrible. I, I feel, I feel very badly about it. But this is happening on our doorstep. You never read about it in the Telegraph. You never read about it on the Herald or the Age or the whatever. It's not on Seven Thirty Report. It's just that terrible silence of this dreadful thing happening on our doorstep again 
and it, we just live in another world as though it's not happening. Now, it, let's go back to that original uh, uh, decision, the vote, the so-called... Act of free choice. Yeah, act of free mm. choice in 1963 it was, wasn't Nine, it? 69. Yes, 69. But uh, Indonesia's connection to West Papua goes back to that 1962 period leading up to this vote. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's right. It, like after the after Indonesia became an entity in itself, the uh, Republic of Indonesia, they definitely wanted, uh, you know, they, they wanted every part of the uh, archipelago that had originally been, um, uh, you know, colonised by, by Holland. And, uh, you know, they did everything in their power to get it. And uh, without... And the, the world just sort of turned its back, really, on what was happening during those years before 1969, where any form of the Papuan people trying to express their desire to have a say in their future was just brutally put down. Now, Australia knew about this. We knew about it. Uh, and just before the... Um, the um, the 1969 Act of, so-called Act of Free Choice, the people call it the Act of No Choice, um, a couple of the leaders of the Papuan people um, tried to escape to go to the United Nations to uh, launch their claim and Indonesia got onto Australia and Australian authorities picked them up and took them to Manus Island and they were not allowed, they were not able to go to New York to stake their claim. Isn't that despicable? Complicity, Australia's complicity goes... Well, all the time, that's right. Well, all the time. Before we go any further here, there were two things from your background material that you had in your report I found interesting. One was the devastating effect on the people, the uh, slightly over 1,000 people who were intimidated into signing that uh, positive vote. They are today uh, still feeling the uh, horror of that event. That's right. Well, yes, yes, we met a few of them and uh, the general, the the, the theme in in, in people was a sense of betrayal of their country, which I, I think is terrible, to carry all your life. But because you were coerced into reading out this statement, that was all it was, a statement written by the military. And it had to be read out through a megaphone and then people were asked to raise their hands if they agreed. And, I mean, many people did agree with... I probably would agree too if so many military standing around the hall, you know, with their guns at the ready. And people knew what had happened to others who had... um, expressed their opposition to this, that people were tortured, killed, and people ran away into the jungles. Uh, to take that, just the, the, the coerced agreement of a minuscule number of the population as being the reason now that Indonesia is in control of West Papua, for that to be recognised by the world is a total disgrace. Now, the next thing that was interesting was that actually the Ghanaian uh, delegation at UN didn't agree, did they? That was very interesting. Yes. They got support from an African country. They did, yes, exactly. Isn't it amazing how the poor always support the poor? Mm. You know, it's not the big rich countries who might fall out of favour with, with Indonesia like Australia. 
And, of course, immediately you say something like that, Annie, immediately it's interpreted, oh, anti-Indonesian. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's actually going to get to yeah. that because it, we, we talk about Indonesia, but actually we're talking about a, a rich military power elite. Is that true? Exactly. Hmm. Oh, definitely. And they still wield a great deal of power, even though their power has been somewhat truncated happily. I mean, you have to give it to Indonesia. They're having a go. They're trying to get towards a democracy. It's not a democracy that has been forced down their neck like uh, Western countries are trying to do elsewhere. I mean, they've adopted it and they've made some very good, um, you know, progress, but one of the things I would love to see, and I'm sure many, many millions of Indonesians would love to see, is some justice done about the killings of their own people in the 1960s. As you say, it's the military might of, and, and these vested interests, in, elites really, that just have, have done this to these poor people. West Papuans have been fighting for five decades now yes, for sovereignty. That's right, and what a magnificent fight they've put up, and they're still going. Honestly, I go cold when I think of it. I think, what amazing people. What, what a wonderful, positive, uh, human characteristic it is to be so loyal to your own people and your own land that you'd be willing to give up your life, which is what so many of them have done. And uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and uh, we're listening to Sister Susan Connolly. She was one of the uh, two people who went on a mission to West Papua and have brought out a report, We Will Lose Everything, a report on a human rights fact-finding mission to West Papua, which was done in February 2016 for the Catholic Justice and Peace Commission of the Diocese of Brisbane. And uh, we are going to hear the rest of what Sister Connolly said on her about her journey and the various things. But uh, I'll have to say, uh, reading the report, uh, Kim, the uh, it's quite soul destroying. Uh, uh, we, except for the fact that the West Papuans are such magnificent fighters, I think it's it's really incredible. I was listening to a bunch of journalists who report on the Asia-Pacific region talking about why it is that basically it's not covered properly in Australia, it's not covered properly anywhere. And I think someone proposed, and I know that 3CR um, is one of the people who draw these links, but basically because we treat our own Indigenous people so badly and the Australian state is predicated on that, and I think you can clearly see the connections between um, Indigenous Australia and Indigenous uh, Indigenous Papua people. But that is one of the major reasons why the Australian state cannot acknowledge the Asia-Pacific region, I mm, think. Shame. Anyway, we'll go on with our discussion with Susan, Sister Susan Connolly. Now, what's going on there at the moment, you've found, is uh, their key issues, uh, issues of land dispossession, murder, um, uh, f- f- fear, uh, and, uh, and the fact that uh, the Indonesians are relocating a whole lot of people from outside West Papua so that now the West Papuans themselves are only about 48% of the population. 
So it's a slow well, actually, genocide. I think it's it's about 49% at the moment, but the projection is 28% in some in just some few years' time. 2020, yeah. that's the projection. Yes, 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 it's shocking. There are claims, really, that the whole transmigration program has ceased. Well, whether it's actually officially ceased or not, the fact is that thousands of people from... Uh, Indonesia, parts of Indonesia, are coming in by the week. I saw the the boat. The people pointed it out to me. They said, "There's the white ship. It's called, and it comes in weekly with thousands of people who've got jobs waiting for them, uh, houses built. We saw some very nice houses, really, but it's not for the Papuans. So even though it may not be an official transmigration program, the the existence of the companies who are just ripping the forests out and planting palm oil, you know, so half of what we eat and wash ourselves with is made from palm oil. Most, a lot of that had come from Papua. So you need to think of that next time you wash your hair or eat Nutella. Don't eat it. I mean, these people are losing their land. That's what they meant when they're saying we will lose everything. And their land just means so much to them because that is their livelihood and their sustenance and what gives them meaning. Their whole culture is built on the land. Now, the really interesting thing is there's a couple of things in your report that uh, just uh, take your breath away. One of them is the uh, I- the Indonesian legal and political system is unwilling and unable to address human rights violations in West Papua. Now, in the, if you take the, the position that West Papua is part of Indonesia, which we don't, but if you did, mm. they're actually unable to stop, protect West Papuans from the military uh, uh, and state of Indonesia. That's what they're saying. Exactly. Now, and I mean, isn't it ludicrous, for want of a better word, that these people are considered by Indonesia as members of the state, and yet they cannot rely on the agencies of the state, like the police, to protect them. And, and I mean, it's not as if they're running around doing appalling things. This is like flying a flag or having a meeting or even a prayer meeting to to pray for the success of various other meetings. In the last couple of months, Annie, thousands of West Papuans have been arrested. Thousands. Now, did you read that in the paper here? Oh, no, no. Just imagine if thousands of people in Australia had been arrested for having a meeting or having a demonstration or flying a flag. It is another world, totally. Well, there's a couple of issues here. The Australia, UK and the US government work in cooperation with the Indonesian government to arm, fund and train uh, Dennis 88 or the Special Detachment 88 who are actually involved in murder and mayhem against West Papuans. Yes, Dennis 88. And one of the most appalling aspects of that, Annie, is that... Uh, political insurgency in Papua is being addressed by Densis 88 as well as others, meaning that this ter- this anti-terrorist organisation is being used to quell um, um, op- opposition from within what is considered to be Indonesia. In other words, they're treating political dissent as terrorism. 
we are funding that. And they're, they're stealing someone else's country, basically, under their noses, and the Indonesian state refuses to recognise customary land ownership or Papuan as Indigenous people of their own land. So therefore they can steal all their country. They just take it. The very first meeting I went to, we got off the plane and we went straight to a meeting, and uh, this huge map showing the areas where uh, international and Indonesian companies are in the process of working with government and just cutting up great swathes of of land. I mean, like the, the words like two million hectares just fall off people's lips. I was astounded, absolutely astounded. And this really insidious way of uh, like companies and local government going along to people, you know, to get an MOU, you know, like it looks all all very good, a memorandum of understanding. And then if the people start asking questions, then a, a week later, the company and the local government and the police arrive. So there's, you know, not much chance... Look, I saw fear in people's eyes. Honestly, I saw fear. We went to a little group uh, who were so angry and so frustrated uh, about how they're just having a, a, um, you know, a meeting to celebrate things and having sport and certainly talking about independence. Uh, but um, they, they were like uh, 20 people in balaclavas arrived with guns. So everybody just ran. Oh, my God. Nobody got hurt at that stage. Just just ran off. Now, these this tiny little village, you know, just... And at that, it was at that village they said to us, we are living like rats. The, the other thing about this, of course, is that uh, there is a very strong element of racism going on here because, of course, the West Papuans are Melanesian people. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that lends one to believe that they should be part of the uh, Indonesian ethnic group. That's right. They are so very different ethnically. And look, Annie, it reminds me so much of what I saw in February reminded me of Timor. And it was exactly the same thing. The Timorese people said to us, they want our land, they do not want our people. And practically the same words verbatim, word for word, was said to me in Papua, exactly about that. They want the land, they don't want us. Oh, it's really uh, disgusting. And, of course, there's collusion with multinational interests and governments like Australia. Well, and one of the latest things which has thrown me, honestly, just last week our Foreign Minister and Defence Minister had a meeting in Indonesia or with the Indonesian foreign minister, etc. Now, the Australian government has been asked to warn the Solomon Islands. Uh, West Papua at the moment is has a, a bid on to become what a part of what's known as the Melanesian Spearhead Group, which is a, um, a very important assembly of um, uh, places like uh, Nauru, Palau, Solomon Islands... Um, uh, Tonga, um, uh, Papua New Guinea, Fiji—they all—they do great things together with trade and uh, mutual support. Now, West Papua wants to become part of that because the people are Melanesian. 
Well, they have observer status, but they want to become a full member. Now, Indonesia has got itself to be an associate member, and they are absolutely livid that West Papua wants to become um, a, a full member. So they're doing everything they can to prevent it, including last week putting pressure on our government to say to Solomon Islands, you be careful because we fund you, so don't you start in, um, interfering in what Indonesia's doing. Look, it makes me... I, I, I'm, I'm appalled that we would do that. Now, our people have not said what they will do, and I, I guarantee they won't be telling us what they will do. We'll have to find out from the Solomon Islands what they did. But I have no doubt, given our supine attitude to Indonesia, that pressure will be put on the Solomon Islands. I hope I'm proved wrong. Now, um, there are the West Papuans do have a uh, working organisation that is walk, working towards independence. Terrific, yes. The United Movement for the Liberation of West Papua. And it's accepted by everybody as the international spokes group for them. Look, I think it's fabulous that a group, uh, a, a, a group of people like the Papuans have been able to generate this. Uh, I mean, they haven't had a history of having a uh, being in charge of their own affairs. It was the Dutch, then it was the Indonesians. But despite that, they have been able to come up with this well-respected group that is listened to very carefully by by everybody. It's not to say that all the Papuans work together beautifully, like you know, some sort of um, fairyland. Not at all. No, no group of people can do like that. We've got to work together. You know what it's like. You know, rubbing shoulders. It's it's difficult. But they've managed to do this, and I think they should be congratulated. And they are working. They are the that's the spokes group for the um, for the liberation of um, uh, Papua. Basically, to sit down and talk with the Indonesian government about the human rights abuses, but they're not allowed. Nobody wants to talk to them. You've got a couple of recommendations, haven't you? Do you want to talk to those? Yes, uh, it would be good. I, I really think that the um, uh, the Australian government uh, should be approached about this, and I, I I I think people ought to be able to people ought to really think about this and not just get duped by the absence of news in in our um, uh, you know news things. We, we need to. We need, as a, a Australians, to really look to our region, and we we need to uh, get onto our government to to complain about the human rights abuses and to go further to get onto the United Nations, and to accede to the request of so many Papuans, including their spokesgroup, the United Movement, uh, for international groups to be able to go in and have fact-finding missions and really work out what is going on. Indonesia tries to keep it all under the carpet. They say that journalists are allowed in now. Journalists and other groups like the Red Cross haven't been able to be allowed in. They say they're allowed in, but I can tell you that so many restrictions are put on them, even the way they can go and get visas to start with, that you've really got to have a lot of time and a lot of money to try and get in there. Yeah, right. I think we ought to we ought to support the Pacific nations. They they they're out on their own. Some of those Pacific nations, they have really stood up for West Papua, and they deserve support. And you know, people in churches and other 
civil society organisations, you ought to form, form groups to find out about um, what's going on in Papua. I mean, there's a wonderful uh, place in... Um, uh, Benny Wender is one of the um, leaders. He lives in London because, of course, he can't go back to West Papua. The Free West Papua Campaign from London. That's the important one, from London. That'd be uh, important uh, to get onto... Uh, groups like that. But if people are in New South Wales, look, you could do no better than to get on to the Australia West Papua Association, A-W-P-A. Do a search on that. Tremendous. You get all the right information and you've got people there who've supported the Papuan people for so long and they really know. Joe and Ann Collins, they're fantastic. We've also got a little prayer for West Papua. I've got all these cards. If people want to contact me to get some of these little cards, because one of the things the people asked us for is please pray for us. And I believe in the power of prayer, and I'm sure many of your listeners do too. There's a little potted history on the back, just a tiny little card, and they're available for nothing. Okay, thanks very much. Common Ground Festival is back this November, featuring Frank Yammer, Dallas Frasca, Emily Waramura, The Deans, plus loads more. Complementing the music makers on stage will be free workshops from the Group Work Institute, a social change unconference, mouth-watering food and nature in abundance. It's about working together to make the world a better place and having one heck of a good time along the way. So visit commongroundfestival.org.au for your tickets. A 3CR supporter. And we've got a couple of plugs, um, one for Melanesia Culture Day, which is happening on Sunday the 4th of December from 12 to 4, and that's at the um, Australian Catholic University. Yes, that's at the uh, top of uh, Brunswick Brunswick Street. Street. Yep, that's right. They've obviously taken on board. This is uh, part of um, obviously good works from the Catholic group and... uh, 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 Various uh, people from West Papua have actually been auspiced by uh, um, the Catholic group. In in Ballarat, for example, that's where the issue of education, one of the things that came out in the report in West Papua is that uh, apparently everybody's got a right to education except, of course, the West Papuans can't afford the fees. It's this ongoing sort of catch-22 arrangement that's going on. Uh, One, the... uh, the uh, imported people from Indonesian regions that have come into West Papua are usurping the traditional uh, owners in their economic pursuits where they sell local produce. So they're being completely marginalised in their own country. So this is why actually going to a Melanesia Culture Day is important. Yeah, that's um, right. Because that's what they try and get rid of, try and erase the yeah. whole culture. As well, there's a Christmas party. Well, there you go. Go for it. Which is on the 11th um, of December from 1 to 3, and it's at the same spot at the Australian Catholic University, which is good because it's close to 3CR. Yeah, that's right. Uh, It's quite interesting, too, that um, uh, one of the things that was pointed out, and because this is from a Catholic point of view, uh, and uh, we're not proselytising or anything, but uh, apparently in West Papua they have a national holiday for to celebrate the arrival of the gospel to West Papua, which came in 1850. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. And the Indonesians, of course, are predominantly Muslim. 
which of course uh, is another aspect to this whole conversation, which is um, not necessarily important to us, but it's definitely important to the people of West Papua. Mm. Isn't that curious? The other thing, a piece of news which might be of interest that relates to Indonesia is that apparently there was a huge rally on Friday in Jakarta, 150,000 people. I don't know who does the counting. They must do it by a map and, you know, the and des- people density. <laughs> well, they, I think partly, oh, yeah, the last time there was 150,000 people, they roughly looked like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. But anyway, apparently it's it's uh, been, uh, it's around uh, uh, something that the uh, local governor uh, said, uh, local Christian Chinese governor said in relation to the Quran. Uh, and there's an election in the air, so there you go. It's been uh, uh, characterised as a religious conflict. It'd be amazing to do some in-depth reporting on that because I feel like we just don't get the whole story. There aren't oh, journalists so embedded there who speak the language um, and it's us just, you know, if only 3CR had the power to do that. Exactly. It would be great to find out. Anyway, moving right along, you're on Solidarity Breakfast 3CR with Annie and Kim. And we're going to move on to part of, we're slightly late, but uh, that's okay. It's Saturday morning. Uh, We're moving on to the Jack Mundy 1999 excerpt. 3CR's turned 40 and from Monday 10th of October right through to Saturday 19th of November, we're celebrating. Join us on 3CR Breakfast from 8 until 8.30am, Monday to Saturday, as we delve into our rich 3CR archive and bring you half an hour of historic gems. So start your day with the sounds that built a station. 40 days of groundbreaking audio celebrating 3CR's 40 years of radical radio. The following is an excerpt of an interview with Jack Mundy, the legendary unionist, from 1999. It's, uh, for those that know Sydney, it's almost uh, unbelievable now to think that in the 50s and 60s, early 60s, Paddington, which is built on the hills, a hot, undulating area, which is now a working class area, was going to be all flattened and, uh, and high-rise development put in. The same thing was going to happen with the rocks. So I think that the movement of the time brought together uh, people who felt that they had some rights. Like uh, I think that the union becoming involved in social issues meant that people who were fighting against leaving the rocks or leaving Woolloomooloo had an ally. And so you had a strange coming together of working class um, homeowners or renters together with a union who, who were prepared to fight for them. And at the same time, you had environmental issues like uh, Kelly's Bush, which is in really a, a really flash suburb of, of Sydney, Hunters Hill, where women went down in front of a bulldozer to save the last remnant of rainforest on the Parramatta River. And as a very last resort, they came to us on the basis they heard that the builders' labourers were saying we should be concerned about things wider than economics. And it's now history. We came together and the middle-upper-class women, together with the rough-hewn builders' labourers, saved Kelly's Bush. And I think this had a tremendous appeal 
to people across the whole spectrum because it was a genuine coming together of working class and middle class in action about the environment. And also, before that time, there was a tendency to look upon the environment as being nature conservation, being forests, rivers, lakes, barrier reef, etc. And what was shot home in the Greenbound movement was that we are, Australia, one of the most urbanised countries on earth. If you take Geelong and Melbourne, Sydney, Wollongong and Newcastle, the Gold Coast and Brisbane, you've got 70% of Australians living in three great urban areas. So the built environment became a very important aspect. And uh, as the um, prominent biologist Paul Ehrlich said when he came, he couldn't believe that you could have an alliance of unions and environmentalists because it was so alien to things that he had experienced in the United States where, where big businesses set one against the other and said you're natural allies and natural enemies. He had them together and he explained it as he said it was the birth of urban environmentalism as against nature conservation. So I think they're the sort of trailblazing things that the, the Green Band movement did. And the, and the reason it did, I think we've traced it through, that you had a union that were just all working, all very, most of, most of us hadn't even had a formal education. And yet, because of the circumstance of a corrupt union before us, we were able to reach out and, and, and bridge that link that made the Green Band movement possible. It was a support we had. Like, on the one hand, we had many uh, people from the uh, employer, naturally, the, the employers were against us. Askin government was very hostile. Uh, we also had um, some union of the right-wing union officials. They were saying things like, quote, the un builders' labourers are going too far. Shouldn't be saving heritage buildings. You know, like they were saying all these things. Well, we responded by saying that anything that impinges upon the workers' rights, they've got the right to do it about. It's not only wages and conditions. And I think they were the things that, that, that attracted a lot of people, some of whom, for example, were liberal voters. On the one hand, we had right-wing union officials uh, criticising us for doing these things. On the other hand, we had small L liberal people in the Democrats, or the, the, in those days there wasn't a Democrat party, there was a, a Gordon Barton's Australia party, those people coming on side and saying, look, normally we're against unions, but we find that Know, saving fig trees in the botanical gardens, saving heritage buildings, saving workers' homes, but well, we find ourselves on side with the union. So that was the sort of dichotomy we had that split the normal left-right division. But just finally, just quickly, I wanted to ask, um, there was other social movements involved and I believe that there was a pink ban at some stage. Can you tell us about that? The pink band that was. Well, the, the, I remember the blue band on. The Macquarie on, University pink band. <laughs> oh, of course. Well, there was also a blue band down on Lake Pedder. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the other thing that I've omitted to say is that because of the times, because of the Vietnam War, apartheid, support for our own, own blacks. For example, we were the first union to bring down Dexter Daniels and uh, Captain Major and took them around the building sites. We, the tent embassy was set up in Canberra. 
with our union, a couple of other union support. So we were involved in all those sort of things as well. And we also, as you made the point, women's social liberation, the very fact we had women working as leaders in the builders' labourers. But <clears throat> the other one happened in, Port in, in, uh, in the Macquarie University was that Jer Jeremy Fisher was kicked out of the Rod Robert Menzies College solely because he was a homosexual. And the builders' labourers, who were then building a big part of the extension, stopped work and demanded that he be reinstated. And they won the case. At the same time, Women's Social Liberation, Anne Curthoys and Elizabeth Jacker, were fighting for a Women's Social Liberation course at Sydney University. Again, there was more development there. Again, the workers stopped work on that job and forced the university authorities to introduce the course. And that course was introduced. The first course on women's social liberation was at Sydney University with Elizabeth Jacker and, and Jean Kerthoy. So, yeah, we, we, well, it was probably in this interview, which is too short, to traverse the whole lot. But, I mean, I think the important thing, of course it was an exciting time. It was a time of change. And I'm not trying to make out that the Builders' Labor Union was miles ahead of any other union. What I'm saying is that they responded to the times. They responded to the calls of other people. It, I want to say it wasn't the intellect of the union leaders that made the change. The main thing you can say, they responded to people who came to us. And then through linking up together, we all were educated together. The book Green Band's Red Union has brought together a whole new generation of people to understand um, what happened or hear more about what happened with the New South Wales BLF than, that perhaps didn't know um, and weren't around at the time. In that, Norm Gallagher was report, was um, quoted as saying some pretty harsh words about yourself and, and the BLF and particularly around that whole um, notion of alliances with perhaps what might not have been seen as traditionally working class kind of uh, allies. Did you ever have any doubts about the direction you were heading in during that time? Well, I think when you're involved in, in so many struggles, of course you've got doubts, not about the overall political scenario because you're involved in so many fights. Uh, you haven't got time to work all those out, but the learning process that we received through the broad range of people and the struggles we were in, whether it's anti-apartheid, Vietnam, whether it's the Green Movement, convinced us that grassroots action and people's action was, was the most important thing. And um, so, no, there wasn't any doubting. We didn't have time anyway to worry so much about that. If we, if we talk, I don't think we should have too much time talking about, no. quote, Gallagher Mundy mm. thing, because... It is true for younger people, they should know that Gallagher and, my, and Mundy fought many fights together. And it was only in the latter stage when uh, he or his philosophy or the particular line of Marxism-Leninism took a stand that we were wrong and petty bourgeois and darling of the trendies, quote, 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 that, that uh, we come apart. So I think for... Anyone having a historical look at the builders' labourers, for much of the time, uh, Mundy and Gallagher and the unions, New South Wales and Victoria, fought together. 
Yep. We've seen over the last 30 years, we've seen a huge change in Australia and, and also in what's happened with unions in terms of amalgamations and the accord period and a long period of the ALP in government. What are your impressions of what that's meant for unions? Well, I think very few of us who, in 1979-80, when Reagan and Thatcherism came a reality, very few of us thought that in 20 years' time, the turn of the century, it would not only still be viable, but would have engulfed both Labor and Liberal, Democrat and Republic, Labor and Conservative in England, all of English-speaking countries in particular, and in most of the industrialised countries, economic fundamentalism, uh, privatisation, deregulation, downsizing, became the order of the day. Very few of us believed they would last for so long. And I think that the, both the Hawke and Keating governments have got a lot to answer for because during that whole period, there was a virtual absence of any rank and file activity. The All decisions were made at a top level. Language like consensus, blind adherence to the accord, uh, all forced amalgamations, and I'm not saying there wasn't a need for some amalgamations because 350 or 400 unions, I think, are too many. But uh, certainly not forced amalgamations. And so I think that the union rank and file lost out badly with Kelty, Hawke and Keating doing their dealing willing at a top level. So the, the union movement and the left in particular uh, lost its way during that period and became very demoralised. Um, and, and, and really not very relevant, and it still isn't very relevant. Uh, though I, I sense now that there is a, a feeling that there's got to be more grassroots activity, there's got to be more rank and file activity. And I would say, not that I travel that much interstate now, but going a little bit around the states, Victoria is the best. I mean, that's how probably bad the other states are. But Victoria is the best as regards the possibility of building new alliances. You're listening to 3CR's 40 Days of Radical Radio Special, celebrating 3CR's 40 fabulous years of community radio. The following is an excerpt of an interview with Jack Mundy, the legendary unionist from 1999. Extending that, the... Capital now tells workers, in fact, that capital is global and therefore workers have to adjust to that and make sacrifices as a result of that. Do you, do you feel the unions have done enough to adjust to global capital? I think it's a real challenge and I think that the union movement is pretty frightened about that challenge. Though when you look at Maitland, the leader of the miners, has made some move to international uh, togetherness, linking up, I think that they've got to do that, but at the same time they've got to fight on their home base. I don't think it's like I see in today's age that uh, profitability has risen 28% in last year and, uh, and wages have risen 2.8 or something, you know, about 10 times or. And I don't think that we do enough publicity-wise. I don't think that the union movement is sort of aggressive enough. I think that the, the horrible wreath and the manner in which he sort of walks up, walk-up type fighter, I think that we're not... The union movement is not um, left or progressive enough to fight back against that. And it, 
And I hesitate to say that because about the last thing you want is some old union official coming on and saying, <laughs> you know, what's wrong with things. As so, an old union official, Jack, by the way, do you think current union officials have enough awareness of class struggle in a general sense? No, I don't think they do. Um, I don't think they've got enough understanding of the class struggle, nor do I think they've got enough understanding of the need to build broader alliances. And they're not contradictory. I mean, certainly the most interesting part of my life was a very working class union building alliances with middle class about environmental and social, ecological issues. And I think the problems of the planet are so many that the union movement must broaden itself. I think if the union movement on the one hand, it's got to be more militant about wages and conditions, but at the same time, it's got to broaden out its activity to other community concerns, particularly like unemployment, the question of you know, things like drugs, the, the whole gambit of, of problems that confront society, that should be union business as well. Mm. Jack, extending that again to socially useful work, which you're leading toward there in some ways, uh, in Melbourne, we've seen City Link being built. We've recently seen the bulldozers and the um, and the chainsaws in Royal Park converting it into a into a Commonwealth Games facility. We've had Albert Park. Now, in each of these cases, the community groups have gone to the unions and said, "We'd like you to support us," but they haven't had that support. How do you feel about that now? Well, I mean, the reason I'm in Melbourne now is at the request of a, a earth worker. And I think that they're on the right line of trying to build alliances between the green movement and the workers' movement, the union movement. Um, but because of the low level of development, I think it'd be probably wrong for them to, to rush. Well, I'm, again, I'm being, bloody, uh, I'm being a, an advisor here. But I think it'd be wrong for them to rush into immediacy and take action. I think that they've got to... It's a fledging organisation. I think it's got to build itself up a little bit. Uh, just digressing, I think one of the weaknesses of the Greenbound movement in New South Wales is that we were a mile out in front. And in some ways, we isolated ourselves a bit. Mm. Things like limited tenure of office and others didn't help much, I might add, but because uh, most junior officials wanted life tenure a bit better if they could organise it. Mm. But I mean, uh, the, the, the very fact that I think that we, I think that the earthworks should, earthworkers should try and build those alliances, and maybe at a later stage. I mean, I think to move into, I've only heard about the development at um, at Royal Royal Park. Is it? Mm. Yeah. Well, it'd be terrific if the union movement was advanced enough to do that. It would appear to me they're not. Which you did, in fact, um, in Sydney. Eh? But which you did in Sydney, of course, you saved the park up there. But um, well, we, we did it many times. But I, I'm saying, when you look back, we were also Let's face it, I mean, the, the history of the Greenbound movement in New South Wales, when they couldn't bribe or coerce us, and we were offered millions of dollars to lift those green bands, they then used a part of the union movement mm. to knock us off. Just 25 years later to finish up with, uh, I'm, I'm sure the unions would now say, look, it was okay then in the 70s when there was plenty of employment, lots of work. These days, jobs are paramount. We have to get jobs for our workers regardless of what they are. How do you answer that? Well, because there was only one union that did it back then either. I mean, it's not true that there was, you know, relatively full employment. There wasn't full employment. There was relatively full employment. But you still made sacrifices. Those workers were consulted and they made sacrifices at that time. So, I mean, 
I think you've got to adjust to each period. And that's why I think now you'd have to argue for, quote, shorter working week. I mean, I think it's outrageous that you're working, got enterprise agreements 48 and 60 hours a week while you've got a million unemployed. If we had a 35-hour week, well, then you could employ those million people. So, so we've missed out there somewhere. But I think the union movement has got to be more creative in what it does and not just reactive to the employers. Obviously, the rank and file and the community were very important in your campaigns and making alliances between the union and the community. And what kind of options do you, and prospects do you think there are in 1999 for those kind of, uh, of alliances to be built? I, th I think they're very numerous, the potential. They're very... The problems of society uh, are manifest, aren't they? I mean, global warming is there. Uh, it's fashionable at the turn of the century to talk about the new century. Well, now when we look at the, the fact of life, we've got four times as many people as we had in 1900. We've got more people in the world living in poverty now than the entire population 100 years ago. And yet you've got the enormous extremes on the other side, terrible riches, you know, all the things we know about. So, I mean, the, the need for community action linking with union action, the potential is unlimited. And I think unless unions do this, they will wither on the vine. If they just get in the, the plight of what USA unions have been, in fact, now USA unions have improved somewhat from a very low level and they're reaching out. I think that we've got a better history here. After all, the progressive unions in this country have always been strong on peace and war, like Vietnam War and, and the Depression, uh, the evictions even in the, in the 20s and 30s. So the progressive section of the union has got a good record of struggle. But of recent times, particularly in that last 20 years, it's slipped down alarmingly. And I think there's got to be a resurgence of militancy and linking, fighting the class struggle, as Kevin said, with taking a class struggle up, exposing just how profitable they companies are, at the same time reaching out to other organisations who are suffering very much in the, in the, in the growth of mad globalisation, people who are suffering out there, there's a lot of allies can be built for the union movement. Three CRs turn 40 and from Monday 10th of October right through to Saturday 19th of November, we're celebrating. Join us on 3CR Breakfast from 8 until 8.30am, Monday to Saturday, as we delve into our rich 3CR archive and bring you half an hour of historic gems. So start your day with the sounds that built a station. 40 days of groundbreaking audio celebrating 3CR's 40 years of radical radio. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when two weeks ago, sadly, we reported dear baby Jesus family fast Senator Bob Deity had resigned. Then last week, happily, we reported the good news that Deity hadn't resigned after all because he needed to be around to ensure the evil unions got crushed. But sadly, this week, we have to report he's gone again. Parliamentary democracy won't be the same. 
and we'll come back shortly to discuss Bob's major achievements over and above sending heaps of people broke. But first, also a week when big supremo Malcolm Tunnebull and our giant mind minister for concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats, Peter Duffer, triumphantly announced not one, no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat person would ever, ever, ever set foot on true blue Aussie soil bit of a surprise because we thought that was the caring business class and socialist policy anyway but ever 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 oh so cleverly backdated to 2013 what clever little machiavellians they are backdated to 2013 when the socialist party also declared no criminal asylum seeker and let's face it in true blue aussie seeking asylum is a crime they declare it illegal yet the long-haired commie goody goody greeny black armband wooden work in an iron lots persist in claiming that under the un of the us of the un of the world refugee convention they are not illegal what would they know 2013 Socialist Party also declared they would never set foot in. This legislation is ludicrous. It is ridiculous. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten ambition, retorted convincingly. Uh, but they've backdated it to when it was your policy, when it wasn't ludicrous or ridiculous. So now that it is, you'll oppose it. At this, little Billy sucked his finger and held it to the wind. There's ridiculous and there's ridiculous, he saged. Well, well, it sounded wise, although we've got no idea what it meant. Anything to add, little Billy? Yes, there's ludicrous and there's ludicrous. Hmm, deep, deep. On the long-haired lot making the ludicrous and ridiculous claim that the government is contravening the UN of convention, the Minister for Blaming the Socialists for Everything Evil, Matthias Rotten Tuther, that's everything evil, not evil Matthias, quickly scotched that, declaring it did not contravene the convention. We have legal advice. Is that George Brandy's brain's advice? Yes, he's our number one legal mind. Uh, so... Do we know what the actual legal, legal position is? No idea. Peter Duffer adopted his deepest thinking expression, identical to his deepest non-thinking expression, and told us the criminals on Nauru and Manus Island could go anywhere they liked. Like True Blue Aussie, Pete. Anywhere they like except True Blue Aussie. They have no right to come here. Uh, Afghans, for instance, so we too can't just go there. We have to go there to defend them. Uh, from whom? From, like you know, Afghans. Uh, but Pete, you say the refugees, correction, criminals, illegals, whatever. When people you don't want near the razor wire try to go there to see what's going on, you say the concentration camps are matters for Nauru and PNG and have nothing to do with True Blue Aussie. So why are we passing laws about them? Uh, uh, Malcolm! In one interview, no embellishment, Pete did say boats were still trying to get here and being turned around. No one in the press gallery thought to ask whether that meant people were dying at sea, but never mind, they're only refugees. Including at least one boat where the refugees said they were heading for New Zealand and true blue Aussie train killers turned them around. 
I was waiting for someone in the excited media throng to ask the obviously naive question, who gave Trublawasi the right to stop people going to New Zealand? Obviously naive because no one asked and the comment has sunk without trace. And top marks and congratulations to Malcolm for picking up the Sensitivity of the Week Award. Surrounded by all these terra nullius people during a You Must Learn to Become Like Us tour of terra nullius communities, declaring, Malcolm that is, with jingoistic righteousness, uh, sorry, righteousness, we are the ones who must decide who can come here. And the people he was patronising must have thought, wish we'd thought of that. Malcolm, your Sensitivity of the Week award is on its way. Don't know why Pete and Malcolm and little Billy and the team remind me of this, but with all this carrying on going on about certain Polly's eligibility, heard one government minister declare, only those with the highest integrity can sit in Parliament, and thought, that's political suicide. There, there wouldn't be one left. Poor Bob, but to his credit, he doesn't leave empty-handed unlike his clients and contractors. More correctly, he won't be empty-handed if he can manage to get his caring business class act together again, as he has talked the government into trading the workers he will not pay in his next round of not paying workers. To explain that, Bob lobbied for a grant to this training college he chaired and where he is still a director, as a result handed two million of our hard-earned to train building industry apprentices at public expense, allowing construction companies and developers to get on with their core business of not paying their workers trained at public expense and ripping off clients and ensuring evil unions and workers are prosecuted if they raise uncomfortable and irrelevant issues like the odd safety problem. So good on you, Bob, for acknowledging there is a small role for the inefficient public sector, unlike the super-efficient private sector as represented by your own corporate empire, which is making the Italian earthquakes look like a harmless little vibration. And speaking of the highest integrity, private colleges like Bob's have such an envied reputation for integrity. Further speaking of, that exemplar of impeccable public relations nightmare world admitted Monday it had stuffed things up a bit Sunday, but would fix that up. And then Tuesday said it had stuffed things up Monday, but would make amends. And then Wednesday conceded it had stuffed things up Tuesday, but would. And then, but finally promised, we plan to rebuild your trust probably for the best, for that must mean they intend to close down altogether. That, that would win our trust. Part of the PR bullions handed this huge 80,000 bonus to its CEO and caring business person that she is. She gave a bit of it to the families of the company's victims. A really smart company would have waited till the dust settled, but then she was a former editor of the Women's Weekly, so she'd have no idea of PR. And they said the obscene bonus was for the good things she did over the whole year and not for killing its customers. That settled that. On reputable sources of news, information and knowledge, like the Women's Weekly, which happens to be monthly, must take issue with those people who were critical of Lord Rupert of Wapping and the media Barantine this week 
after, for two and a half years and two years to go, almost daily coverage of great patriotic moments a hundred years ago in the great war that sculpted the values that make True Blue Aussie, True Blue Aussie. Invasion, slaughter, misery, psychiatric disaster, and all those other related admirable national values. Because how could they celebrate the centenary of people voting not to support the slaughter of conscripted youth when there's no opportunity to dredge up a couple of cute eight-year-olds in slouch hats, whack a few medals on their chests and have them tell us how proud they are of the freedoms we enjoy because we invaded Turkey a hundred years ago in a military debacle. You couldn't have kids tossing the sacred slouch hat to the ground and stomping on precious metals, so I'm on Lord Rupert's side in this case. It was impossible to report. Or perhaps he's saving up for a mass coverage of the centenary of the second referendum. And there were far more pressing national issues. Lloyd Squillians winning another Melbourne Cup. Those horses, those Squillians off the backs of the blood, sweat, tears, death, injury of evil building workers and the pockets of problem gamblers at the Crook Casino, now run by the scion of Lord's great close, close friend, the sadly lamented Lord Kerry of Waterhouse, street boxing champ Jamie Kid Puker, and Jamie's own split with Mariah. Don't, don't we all feel for them? And, and Lord Rupert reported, quoting a reliable friend of Mariah's, the split was down to Mariah being a traditional girl who doesn't believe in sex before marriage. Yes, it's pretty obvious. The source telling us they made out plenty but never sealed the deal. Doesn't make it any easier for us, though. But how could a nation rejecting the slaughter of its youth compete with that? Finally, as our highest polluting power station is set to close, governments are being grilled over what they plan to do. You're not doing enough. The trillions of the public purse you've come up with are not enough for the affected workers and communities who do clearly need a transition plan. But as the super-efficient private owners scurry off to Paris or New York or Singapore or wherever, loaded with their bags of profit... How come cleaning up their social and environmental responsibilities lies fairly and squarely with the bloated, inefficient hand of the public purse? It is a silly, naive question, Renee Le Bloated explained. That is the role of the public purse. Of course. Good morning. Well, that's right. It is. It's the uh, role of the public purse. <laughs> um, it has its own, its own agency Yeah, exactly right You're on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR With Annie and Kim We've just been listening to This is the Week That Was With Kevin Healy Before that we had a bit of a Walk down memory lane It was a, a conversation mm. that was had With Jack Mundy The great uh, unionist Who was responsible for leading The uh, campaign for green bands in New South Wales that saved many things. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, capitalism and developers just eat, 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 eat. And, uh, oh, God, yeah. and it's funny, I come from a country town and it was funny because I've done some history in, of that town and found that uh, many of the older buildings that still remain in that town would have been knocked down, except that they didn't have enough money to do the developments. 
they ran out of money at some stage. And interestingly enough, all of a sudden, sort of like a, a magician's, uh, uh, you know, how the magician pulls out a, a, a bouquet of flowers, the old... The old buildings now are the things that are the tourist attraction. And mm. if they had pulled them down, the town would have been naught. It, re- it reminds me, interestingly, that the whole... I mean, the terrible thing was the corkman. Um, but I realised that it was very odd. It took me a while to remember this. I walked past it on my way to work. And I remember a week before it happened... Week or two, the I walk- demolition. Yeah, the demolition, the you the know, illegal demolition of yeah the Corkman, just terrible. Um, I thought it was odd at the time, but they were they had all these fridges out there which they were saying free to a good home if you just come and pick them up. It took me a while to make any kind of connection <laughs> with that. <laughs> oh, isn't that interesting? So they there was a bit of planning involved. Well, this is just me inferring from something that could be nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the fridge, the the fridge debacle. But anyway, uh, while people were guzzling champagne on uh, the uh, cup uh, holiday uh, earlier last week, there was uh, the police and security guards uh, f- swooped in on the homeless uh, people's union and uh, supporters that were uh, occupying some of the houses in Bendigo Street in Collingwood, as people will be aware. It uh, was splashed across uh, the pages in the Herald Scum uh, headline, Good Riddance. I know, it's just horrible. You see these people being dragged out of their homes and then the heading is Good Riddance. It's just, it's like a normal person wouldn't actually think that. That's not the heading that a normal person would think. No, well, anyway, uh, uh, the in the paper, there was this whole carry-on about violent squatters, upset neighbours and undeserving poor not allowing those but beyond reproach salvos from putting the deserving poor into these houses, which, of course, has diverted attention from the fact that uh, the... Um, the the lack of affordable housing, rent, rent gouging and government pandering to developers that the Homeless People's Union were highlighting over the big Bendigo Street housing vacancies. Uh, that it's a political issue, but by pretending that it's all about just a few rabble-rousers who are squatting and uh, stealing resources that should be going to the deserving poor being monitored by the Salvation Army uh, means that, of course, all those issues are being dimmed. And uh, we had the opportunity to go down to the steps of Victorian Parliament uh, earlier in October, the 20th of October it was. It's the beginning of a campaign which is highlighting the fact that actually the government is trying to sell off public housing in a way that uh, disassociates it from the uh, need to, uh, their responsibility to create affordable housing. And sometimes they actually just give it away to corporations for free. I mean, that's what a lot of social housing is. Yeah, right. There you go. So there you go. So let's hear about what happened on the steps on the 20th. Can you tell me about the uh, event today? Well, um, I'm here from Friends of Public Housing. I'm a public tenant. Um, 
Um, I think without public housing, people's lives will be far more difficult. It will be very... Um, it's very difficult to get into private rental and at the moment what the government's planning to do is to hand over even more of our public housing to groups known as social community and affordable housing and these are not the same as public housing. So the people are being confused and being tricked really into um, not being um, aware that we are losing public housing and this has been happening under Liberal government and also under Labor and it's an absolute disgrace and the very fact that they're trying to suppress the debate about hanging on to public housing is in itself very immoral. Well, the difference between a rally and a demonstration is that we are rallying to defend and extend public housing. This is not a reactive campaign. This is a proactive campaign. And that's the difference. So we are rallying to let the government of the day know our thoughts on this important issue. As the government hasn't made an official announcement, we're not demonstrating. If they did make an official announcement they were going to privatise 70% of public housing, then we would demonstrate against it. So what you're saying is that they're doing it by stealth? No, what I'm saying is Cabinet has made a decision but it hasn't been publicly announced because obviously it's a very poor decision for the party, for the ALP, because if they go ahead with the decision there's a good chance the Greens will pick up six or seven inner city seats, including the housing minister's seat of Albert Park, Mr Mr Foley's, Mr Wynne in Richmond, in Northcote, Essendon, Maribyrnong. There are large blocks of public housing in these areas. So this purpose of these rallies over the next uh, two years, and they'll be held monthly until the housing minister says two things. One, they, have, they've, uh, they will not be privatising public housing, and two, They'll be putting funds to extend public housing in this state and we will continue this campaign until the next state election. This is a politically motivated campaign to put direct pressure on the ALP to turn their back on this privatisation agenda which they've endorsed in Cabinet. Now, we're sitting here in front of uh, Parliament on uh, the two days before the local council elections. Significant? No, not really. Local council elections have very little power uh, in terms of uh, dealing with uh, uh, homelessness and uh, affordable housing. This is basically a state issue, as well as a federal issue, but it's primarily a state issue. It is the state ALP government which has an agenda to privatise the public housing sector, and that way they wash their hands of the responsibility to provide affordable housing to all Victorians. And it is, it is the beginning of a... Uh, it will be a disaster if this occurs. When's no. the next one? Uh, 10th of November, and the next one we're having, we're, the Parliament will be sitting. Parliament's not sitting today. This is just to initiate the campaign. We had to move very quickly because we wanted to get the ideas across before they actually announced the decision. If they announce the decision, they have to follow through, and they look bad when they uh, uh, you know, respond to public anger. If the decision hasn't been announced publicly, they can just wash their hands of it. So this is a campaign to put pressure on the ALP, especially uh, the uh, power brokers in the ALP. And this is a decision to say that their parliamentary wing has gone off the rails and they need to back off on this particular decision because there is nothing in this for the ALP, nothing at all except the uh, state government washing its hands of its responsibility to provide affordable housing for all Victorians. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Joe Toscano. Well, there you go.
And yes, indeed, it's about subverting our social security system so that everything looks like it's hunky-dory, but in actual fact, it's not. It's really incredible. I think one of the things that gets me is that you walk around the city and you see all this architecture and all these... You know when you see a bench that happens to be undercover and they stick like a big... um, what do you call it, an arm rest in it, where it obviously doesn't need one. And you sit there and you go, oh, no, that's to make sure that homeless people really suffer and that they can't get themselves undercover. That's That's what that's about. Well, they don't want people hanging around um, all over the place uh, because it's unsightly. Yes, but they want them on the streets because they don't want to do anything about it, but they want to make sure that they're, to the observer that they're suffering. That's what it looks like. Well, it seems to me that uh, there's been a bit of movement and uh, homeless people have politically uh, become a voice, right? Uh, They they had some traction. Over the last few months, there's been uh, some positive traction uh, and uh, it's entered, it's it's an agenda item. Homelessness has become an agenda item. You can't uh, avoid the fact that there are homeless people uh, because they're not hiding themselves, effectively. But uh, there are certain uh, social welfare organisations that are built around dealing with homelessness. But obviously what's happened is that the stock of public housing has become so reduced that they're not actually taking up... They don't f- fulfil demand, basically. But there's been this move towards what is called social housing. And, I mean, there are programs on 3CR that go through the various pressures and issues that are going on. But what's going... uh, So you can get more depth conversation about this. But it's quite clear that even though there's a whole group of people comfortably off who feel that everything is in control, it's not true because there's... People are being... uh, Who have been in long-term public housing, for example, uh, and this, there are cases of this where they are moved from these places, said that they're going to be upgraded and that then they find that they've been uh, used, they've, they've gone into the social housing network, which is, means that they're being uh, organised and um, ma- managed by a private, private institution of some kind. Some kind. And the they can't afford the rents because they don't fall into like they, maybe they're on a pension, for example. Yeah, well, you were explaining this to me um, the other day. So sometimes you have to earn over a certain amount just to get into these places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to have twenty five thousand dollars a year, which for a majority of people is considered to be a low income. But you see, a person who's on a pension will probably be getting half that. So therefore, they are immediately excluded from any of the social housing. Now, that's just a nonsense, a total nonsense. Now, people think that public housing is the same thing as social housing. It's not. And this is the thing that the Homeless People's Union are trying to bring to the attention of people. Now, uh, the Salvation Army doling out houses to their own people based on the notion that they are, uh, well, I presume, 
believe in Christianity for a start because Salvation Army is a proselytizing organisation. Now, that, that immediately puts limits on, the, uh, on a person's... Uh, I mean, this is a patronising process rather than an economic, social welfare, social security process. This is, this is managing people in the same way as an 18th century notion that the same 18th century economy that the uh, federal government is trying to force onto the workers' system that we, uh, industrial relations system, they are actively trying to subvert modernity by what they're doing in the, in the uh, service of multinationals, how how peculiar is that? We're in the the midst of some sort of science fiction uh, um, monster movie or something. And wasn't it also that it's kind of connected to you know all those private job agencies that um, purport to help people get jobs, and Centrelink now forces you to have to deal with these. And of course, they've found huge rorts, including in the charity um, Catholic. Catholic care was it? I can't remember what it's called, but they were implicated in all that job stuff. So, I mean, they can be just as corrupt. Well, the the point is, the point is that it's like private prisons. Uh, I know, I know that it's argued that oh, and I've heard people, you know, people who are considered to be terribly sensible, that uh, you know, if someone else can prove that they're better at running um, a service than the government, then that's what you know. It's only practical that we should do that. However, there are actually other issues at uh, stake here that uh, accountability is an incredibly important issue. And uh, so with prisons, for example, I maintain that if you're going to put someone in prison based on the, uh, the power of the community, you know, expectation then you, as a government, as a representatives of the community expectation, have the responsibility to be accountable and actually run that service. The other thing is that you're not meant to have a conflict of interest. And as soon as you no. put a private corporation in charge of a prison, they have a conflict of interest yeah, in keeping people in prison. Exactly, because their only focus is their shareholders' I mean, it's not a simple thing at all. And it's the same thing with public housing. It's not a simple thing at all. What you're doing is opening the doors to a whole lot of uh, private developers and corporate interests because, of course, that's where there's a huge amount of money to be made. I mean, it's the same argument and logic about why you would give public monies to private schools without having any control at all about what they do, when in actual fact your primary responsibility is to public schools and that private schools, if people want to send their children to private schools, good luck to them. Mm. You're on 3CR, um, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we're outraged. We're talking about um, public housing. We are. We're outraged. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. There's a big event on today. Yeah, there's a big rally for refugees, um, which uh, is happening in the city. Um, what time does it start? It starts at one, and it will be at the uh, State, State Library. Library steps, and it's called Let Them In. Yeah, really important given uh, what's happened with, you know, Malcolm Turnbull's not doing so well in the polls. So what did he come out and do? Yeah, that's right. You can run a raffle on it. Someone actually, that's right. You could, which marginalised group of people who are completely defenceless will the Liberal parties attack this week? Oh, God. And you, I don't know how you can still be shocked, but that's just incredible. What I'm sure that uh, listeners would know, but I'm going to reiterate. Um, What's happened is they're now making it impossible for anyone who's ever tried to get asylum in Australia to get a visa as a tourist or as anything else. So you can imagine how this would tear families apart. I'm not entirely sure. I heard that it's retrospective as well. Well, that's very interesting because they're in love with retrospective. Have you you noticed that... uh, They love retro, yeah. Retro, because uh, apparently the... uh, the anti-union, uh, anti-worker legislation that they've got, they, they keep bandying about in uh, in federal parliament. Hopefully they've stuffed that one up, hopefully. Hopefully, but uh, apparently it uh, is uh, dated 2014. Of course, it's not 2014 anymore, which would mean that if it got passed, unless it gets um, f- fixed up... But they, I mean, is it a competency issue or is it a, a, a diabolical devil issue? Like bureaucratic. <laughs> kind but of. it would be retrospective. Hmm. It's a funny concept because it doesn't really, it doesn't accord with reality. It's like this bureaucratic abstract concept that they've made up. And so it's like, how is that going to actually work in the real world? Maybe, maybe that's the problem. Maybe all the ordinary us... Us, all of us, normal, uh, all of us people in this country, are having a a um, kind of uh, a fugue because the people in parliament uh, appear to be off in some uh, some other world of their own making. Yeah, you know when you don't know whether it's jargon or if it doesn't actually exist what they're talking about. Yeah, that's right. Or because because of course they're supposed to be agenda setting and we're supposed to be shadow boxing against the agenda, while they get on with uh, making lots of money and drinking champagne at uh, Melbourne Cup days. Oh yeah, the races. <laughs> the races, the races. Anyway, uh, we've ranted enough. We've come to the end of Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, what did we have on the program? Oh, so much. I'm going to quiz you. Quiz me. <laughs> Someone said that. It we sounds, talked about West Papua. That's right. Sounds just like um, that uh, Hanson woman and they've been practising it. Oh, right. Going up? Up. 
<laughs> so we had West Papua. <laughs> That's right. And we followed that with Jack Mundy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll stop doing it. It's bad enough. That's right. Jack, Jack Mundy, uh, 1999, reflecting. Great man. And uh, we moved on with This Is The Week That Was. And then we had a little bit of an investigation into uh, homelessness, what happened down at Bendigo Street. and uh, then... Which just made us really angry. Yeah, which made us really angry. And uh, and then we moved on to talking about the ongoing campaign against uh, the Victorian government's decision or discussion, not publicly announced yet, that uh, they want to sell off 70% of uh, the public uh, housing stock. But we know, we all know what's coming. Yeah, well, they better watch out. Uh, hopefully next week we will speak to Spike and Kelly about uh, what happened down at Bendigo Street rather than having to rely on the Herald scum. Oh, I forgot to tell you that um, the news on one of the latest things that's been turning up in the news about Bendigo Street is that uh, a body has been found in one of the houses. Uh, The news is from the homeless workers union people is that uh, they don't know this person at all, that they must have sneaked in while uh, all the ruckus was going on. Uh, He is not a person of a part of their group of people, so... uh, um, whatever is said in the mainstream media, uh, it, it, they have nothing to do with that poor fellow's demise. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.